So Galatians 2, starting at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was, not running, I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of, of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Thanks, Lizzie. Do keep that open. And uh, we're going to be looking at those 10 verses together now. And let's pray and ask God that he would help us to understand this. Father, please would you open our our hearts now. Pray we'd understand these words rightly. And uh, Lord, we want to work out what we should do about it. So we pray, Lord, that you would show us how your word is relevant. And then please help us to live this out, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, just as we begin, a, uh, a word about slugs. Don't you just hate them? And uh, they're everywhere, aren't they? Especially when it gets mild in springtime. Um, Bill uh, Power, who lives next door to us, last springtime, I, caught, I think, Bill, where are you? About a thousand, was it, you caught? Something like that? It was quite a lot, wasn't it? Many thousands, perhaps, anyway. And uh, uh, just extraordinary. The weather warms up and they just destroy your garden. And uh, now, I, I understand we're not supposed to use salt to kill them anymore because that's inhumane. I thought they were slugs, but anyway. But, uh, but anyway, we, we use slug pellets, and it's, uh, maybe it's just the slug pellets that we use, but as far as I can see, it just gives a, the slug a headache, they go away, they recover, they breed, and they come back about a week later with their children and their grandchildren. Now, clearly, I know nothing about the life cycle of the slug, but, uh, uh, and they ha- have a wonderful time just completely destroying the garden. They are the bane of my life. Now, what has that got to do with Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10? Well, simply this, that the early Christian church had an infestation of theological slugs. They'd been quietly lying around, and then they'd slowly crept into the church, unnoticed, 
and they'd begun to do serious damage. Theological slugs. Now, we have theological slugs in the church today, too. Uh, Theirs in the first century were a bit different from ours. In the first century, their theological slugs were saying, well, Jesus is great, uh, and you must be a Christian, but actually you've got to be Jewish as well. In order to be saved, you've got to be Christian and then live effectively like a Jew. So if you're a lad, you've got to be circumcised. If you have a boy, a son, then he's got to be circumcised. You've got to eat the right food. You've got to keep all the Jewish laws. And over the years, uh, over the years those kind of theological slugs have pretty much died. I don't hear too many people saying, you know, become a Christian, you must be circumcised. I, I personally have never heard anyone uh, these days say that. Uh, they're perhaps uh, dying out, uh, certainly in England. But they've been replaced by others, related slugs. And, uh, and these uh, slugs who are related to them say things like this. Well, uh, Jesus is great. You've got to believe in Jesus. That's good. And be saved. But in order to be saved and to keep saved, you've, got to, uh, you've really got to keep those Ten Commandments and be a really good person. Because if you don't do that, heaven might just crumble before your eyes. Or they might be saying, some of these uh, 21st century theological slugs, well, uh, uh, believe in Jesus, but you really have absolutely got to be in church at least eight times a month. If it's five Sundays a month, then maybe just one of those uh, uh, may just creep out. But if you don't, for whatever reason, then you're not really doing enough in order to stay saved. Or they might be saying, believe in Jesus, that's great, but in order to be a real Christian, real Christians have wonderful and great spiritual experiences. And many real Christians, by which they mean all real Christians, for instance, speak in tongues. So some say, you've actually got to speak in tongues. Now, I've got nothing against speaking in tongues. But if someone says you've got to to be a Christian, they're changing the gospel. Now, if you uh, find yourself in any of those uh, situations, or you end up in a church which is teaching that, Actually, can you see that they're talking about the way you get saved is different. And they're taking, I mean, Tim introduced the service by saying this evening, we're talking about grace, about how God gives us this salvation. And actually, all those three little examples of these theological slugs that you might see today, they're talking about ways in which they're adding to the gospel. And they're saying, well, that's okay, but you've got something to add as well. You've got to do something as well in order to be saved or to stay saved. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is all about God's grace. And theological slugs are a huge danger to the Christian gospel. So this evening we're actually talking about true gospel unity. Now, interestingly, um, this is a coincidence, but this is the week of prayer for Christian unity. Every year it's from January the 18th to 25th. So this is the Sunday in the middle of the week of prayer for Christian unity. And a lot of Christians are getting together and praying for Christian unity. Well, what do we mean by Christian unity? I mean, is it possible to be genuinely united with someone who doesn't believe the same gospel? Actually, no, it's not. Not to have a genuine oneness with them. And this evening, we're going to be talking about a true unity, which always is a unity in the gospel. 
And it's saying, and what this passage is saying, that unless we actually believe the same stuff in terms of how we say, there's lots of peripheral stuff about how we do church and things like that. They're called second order issues. But unless we actually believe the same way you get to heaven, then actually we cannot be genuinely and truly united. Now, in this week of prayer for Christian unity, um, it's great to pray for Christian unity. We've been involved locally uh, with this week um, ever since I've been here. And, uh, uh, but we've got to remember that real, genuine Christian unity has got to be based on the gospel of grace. That Jesus died for us, that he was raised from the dead, that he offers us the free gift of eternal life. Uh, we believe, don't we? Look at uh, chapter 1, way back in chapter 1. Well, it's not way back, is it? The previous chapter, verse 4. And he talks to us about Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay? It's a rescue. Grace. It's about grace and it's about a rescue. And... Uh, um, You see, someone else would say, I believe in Jesus. But if they don't believe that, that it's about grace and it's about a rescue, then there's going to be a real struggle to be truly united because we're not talking about the same gospel. We're talking about Jesus dying for us. Substitutionary atonement, for instance, is what we're talking about. That he came and took our place, that we may be made one with God. That's what it's about, okay? Now, uh, that was an introduction. First main point is this. We're thinking about true gospel unity, and, uh, and it remembers that the gospel is fundamental. Now, verse 5 here in chapter 2 is the absolutely key verse. It says here, We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, he's writing there to the people in Galatia, okay? But actually, this is scripture, So this is saying, this has got a relevance for all history, all the way down Christian history. So so what he's saying here, um, uh, he said, we did not give in to them for a moment. He's talking about a meeting. I'll give you some details about that in a minute. He's talking about a meeting that they had with the other apostles, the Jerusalem apostles. And he said, we didn't give them in for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For you. Now, that is Christian people down all history. And he's talking about a meeting here, which if it had gone the wrong way, would have changed the whole of the history of the Christian church. That is no exaggeration. Okay? If this had gone pear-shaped, then the whole Christian church ever since would have looked totally and completely different. So what's the situation in the Bible here? Well, Paul was in Jerusalem 14 years ago, uh, 2002. 2003 now, okay, a long time ago, when England won the Rugby World Cup. That is a very long time ago, isn't it? Okay, and uh, um, uh, so he, he was in Jerusalem 14 years ago, and now he's returned, and he's got two mates with him. On the one hand, he's got Barnabas. Barnabas is a Jew, and he's also got Titus. Titus isn't a Jew. He's a Gentile, okay? So he's got those uh, two mates with him. And he's meeting these leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And these are esteemed leaders. So you look at verse 2, you look at verse 6, look at verse 9. They're esteemed leaders, okay? They're highly respected. They're the, they're the top brass, if you like, in the church in Jerusalem. They are James, who is Jesus' brother, Peter, 
who kind of preached the first ever Christian sermon, the apostle on the day of Pentecost, he was, uh, he was there, and John, as in John's Gospel, and 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Okay, Peter, James, and John, key guys in the early church. They are in Jerusalem, and look at verse 2, they had a private meeting. This means, it wasn't a great big synod, it wasn't, uh, the press weren't there, no one was tweeting from it, they were having a private meeting, okay? And Paul presents to them the gospel that he has been preaching. Uh, he's been preaching it to the Gentiles, those who aren't Jews. And, uh, uh, and he wanted to make sure that his past and his present and his future ministry was actually firmly grounded. He wanted to make sure that you and I would not be wrecked by these theological slugs who wheedled their way into the church then, or any kind of relatives of these theological slugs who are wheedling their way into the church now. Okay? Then the slugs were saying, get your lad circumcised, eat the right food, get to the Jewish ceremonies and so on. And when he set up uh, uh, this meeting, we well, need to be clear, at the end of verse 5, he had us in mind. Okay, he's talking about the Galatians, but actually beyond that, he's saying he's got people like you and me in mind. He's got Christians ever since down Christian history in mind. That he wanted to get this sorted and be clear, what is this message that we're preaching to the world? What is this message that we're writing down, that is here in Scripture, so that we would have, what is the message? Let's be clear about it, so people know what this is. And can we be united? Can we be united in this? In this early church, you've got the guys in Jerusalem. They're, they're going for the, uh, for the Jews. You've got Paul going for the Gentiles. Is it the same message? Is there one gospel? Or are there, effectively, many gospels? And uh, uh, so let's... Um, I mean, I think verse 5, the end of verse 5, is amazing. The truth of the gospel might be preserved for the guys in Galatia, and for Christian people ever since. Thank God that we've heard the gospel. The true gospel that's been taught to us. A few years back now, I, I received a postcard from a friend of mine who's a vicar. He had been in our youth group when we were up in Crowborough. And he said, uh, Phil, I'm just writing you. I think it was probably Phil and Anna. Um, I'm just writing you this postcard, sitting in a meeting. And there's a guy at the front preaching. And he's just suggested that uh, uh, we ought to write a quick note to uh, the people who taught us the gospel to thank them for teaching us true truth. And so I'm doing it now. And, uh, and then at the end of the meeting, he found a stamp, bunged it in the post box, and we got it a couple of days later. Now, um, why don't we send 100 cards or notes, uh, one each, to someone who's been really important in our lives teaching us the true truth of the Christian gospel. It's so encouraging, actually, to receive that a few years back, and, uh, but some, simply to thank people for teaching us about Jesus and the truth of Jesus. Why don't you do that? This year uh, sees the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so we can thank God, too, in our prayers for those who preserve the truth of the gospel from the dangers of the medieval church. I think it's a good idea, actually, when we're thinking of this uh, preserving the truth of the gospel 
that actually we know about the Reformation, we find out about it. There are some great, simple, straightforward books about the Reformation. A bit of church history does us, does us an awful lot of good. You might want to go to Bible by the Beach at the beginning of May. It's all about the Reformation. We're going to be doing some teaching on it in the autumn because that's when the anniversary is. Actually, it was on Halloween and Martin Luther kicked it off by nailing 95 theological theses to the church door in Wittenberg in Germany. But more of that come October time. But uh, um, Or get a book. We'll get some books on the bookstall as well. And thank God for those who have preserved the truth of the gospel for us. Anyway, they had this private meeting in Jerusalem. And uh, uh, if it had all gone pear-shaped, then they would have compelled Titus, the, the Gentile guy, they would have compelled him to get circumcised. You know, they would have said to him, look, Paul, um, you know, uh, here's Titus. Uh, uh, Paul, you're a Jew, you've been circumcised, but Titus, he's a Gentile, he hasn't been circumcised, but he is a Christian. And he could have said, well, Titus really needs to be circumcised. But it all went well. And so, so Titus, they said, well, he doesn't have to be circumcised. You'd have to live like a Jew if you're a Christian. And they agreed the gospel, and they recognized that Paul would go to the Gentiles, and that Peter, James, and John would continue taking the gospel to the Jewish people. And they shook hands on it. Look at verse 9. Um, uh, this sounds terribly old-fashioned, doesn't it? Peter, Cephas, or Peter, same guy, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They shook hands on it when they recognized the grace, the grace given to me. You know, we could do that tonight. It sounds terribly formal, as if you ought to be wearing suits and be Baptists or something. But, uh, um, but you know, if you, if you agree in, on the gospel and we're united in Christ, then why don't we shake hands with each other? You know, guys in KO, go and see some of these older folks and just go and say to them, uh, true gospel unity, one in Christ, and just offer your hand and shake hands with some of us older folks. And why don't we do the same? If you know someone else is here as a Christian, okay, you may not talk to them, but if, you know, if they're here every week and you know they're Christians, go up and say, true gospel unity, or one in Christ, and shake hands on it. That's what they did at that meeting in Jerusalem. Okay? That's exactly what they did. We're preaching the same message. We're Christians together, one in Christ. I would love to see us doing that after the service this evening. And one other thing, that meeting they had was a high-pressure meeting. The stakes were huge. The future direction of the Christian church was at stake. Church history ever since, if that had gone wrong, would have looked completely different from the way it has done. And imagine you were outside the meeting. The doors were closed. You know there was uh, Paul and uh, the three Jerusalem ones. Maybe Titus and Barnabas were in there as well, so there could have been six of them having, uh, having this meeting. And if you were outside, you'd have been nervous. You'd have been praying. You'd have had rather sweaty hands. You'd have been pacing up and down. An important meeting was going on. So true Christian unity depends on us agreeing the gospel. If we don't agree on the gospel that Jesus died for us, he's a substitute for our sin, that we're helpless sinners and Jesus rescued us. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. If we don't agree on that then we will never be truly united. And any show of unity can only be very shallow at best. So, true gospel unity remembers that the gospel is fundamental. Second, it respects our different backgrounds. Now, 
let's be clear about this. We're not talking about making clones. The last thing we want is a whole load of full moons in this church. Okay? One's more than enough. All right? Or to have a whole bunch of Stephen Demetrios and KO. One's more than enough. Or a whole load of Matt Joneses in the music. Again, one's enough. Okay? Or a, a, a whole load of Brian and Antoinette's in a small group and so on. No. We are not cloning people. Let's be clear about that. True gospel unity respects our different backgrounds. Now, it's June. There has been for a number of years, 25 years probably now, something up in London, a conference called the Evangelical Ministry Assembly. And uh, I'm a bit naughty like this, but I used to go up there and I'd play spot the beige chinos and the light blue button-down shirts because there are an awful lot of those around. Now, it's chinos and a check shirt. But, uh, but you see, um, but now it's great because uh, there's a whole range of different shirts worn. It's not just check shirts. There's all sorts of things going on up there. People wear what the people go in shorts and things. It's amazing. But that's really good, isn't it? I think that's really good because we're not the same. And our different backgrounds are respected and we rejoice in that. But look at verse 4. This matter arose because some false believers, slugs, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. When it says false there, it's uh, literally pseudo. And uh, one of the translations, J.B. Phillips did a translation, a kind of paraphrase of the Bible, and uh, he called them pseudo-Christians. There's another uh, more modern version of the translation of the Bible, which, calls, which translates that sham Christians. In other words, people who are Christian in name only. Christian in name only. In other words, they're not Christians. And they've wormed their way into our meetings, one of the translations of the Bible says. And they get their way into churches. And they influence people's thinking. And they dilute and distort the gospel. And make it not the gospel at all. And they take away God's grace. Shocking. Well, let's get back to verse 4. The freedom we have in Christ Jesus. We believe the same gospel. But we are gloriously different we're different backgrounds, we're different ages, we dress differently, we speak differently, I hope. Uh, we have different friends, we watch TV programs, different TV programs, or no TV at all. We eat different foods, and that's all wonderful. We have different backgrounds. And thank God that we're different. And we need to respect other people and the differences that we have here. And after, after, after church, work out who's the most different to you here tonight. And then go up with your hand outstretched and say, one in Christ, okay? Um, because, you know, it's, it's a bit scary. Go with your mates. Take someone else with you, okay? But that's it, you know. I'm 16 and you're retired. And I haven't begun work yet. Or you're male and I'm female. Or you, you're using a walking stick and I run. Or I love hymns and you love drums. Or uh, you've got aches and pains in the morning and, I, and you get up at half past six I'll be in bed until midday if I could. Um, but we are one in Christ Jesus. We have different backgrounds. We're one in Christ. So go and do it. 
Because the gospel is for people of all cultures, all races, every single school, all backgrounds, and all the rest of it. And we all respect our differences. And that is true gospel unity. It respects our backgrounds. Third, it recognizes our different calling. Now, the outcome of this private meeting in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, look at verse 7 here. Uh, They recognize I've been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, in other words, the Gentiles, okay, Uh, the non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jews, in other words. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. So they agreed they had different callings, one to the Jew, one to the Gentiles. Same message. So there was no additions, there were no modifications, they didn't trim it, they didn't change it. It's the same gospel, okay? The same gospel. The only differences were their backgrounds, that's point number two, and also their calling. Same message, that's very important. So Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles, that's you and me. Thank God for him. Peter, James and John took the gospel to the Jews. That's what they were doing. That's what they continue to do. What's your calling? Where's God calling you to take the gospel to? Now, we're not apostles. What's your calling? We've all got one. My calling is to be uh, the vicar here. To do all I can with God's power to help people within our parish here and in Brighton Hove and a bit of a wider responsibility in Sussex with the SGP, the Sussex Gospel Partnership, to become Christians and to grow in their Christian faith. That's my calling. What's yours? Maybe it's with your neighbours. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your people, your friends at work. Maybe it's with friends. And I've got friends coming down next weekend. He used to be my boss when I was a teacher 500 years ago. He's, he's really old. and uh, No, he's not that old. And, uh, um, how would you do that? What's your calling? Where's God want you to share the gospel? School gate tomorrow morning? Your front line? School tomorrow with friends. Do you pray for them? Do they know you're a Christian? With your neighbours? With your family? We've all got front lines. We've all got various callings of where God wants us to be with the same gospel. True gospel unity. It remembers that the gospel is fundamental. It respects our different backgrounds. And it recognizes our different callings. And then, I think slightly strangely at the end here, it resolves to care for the poor. You know when you're learning to drive, and uh, sometimes it doesn't quite go in, and then you let the clutch in and it goes... And you think, oh dear, that's like kind of grinding the gears and so on. And uh, it's all rather embarrassing. Well, it feels a bit like that here. I mean, it just, you know, verse 10 is a little bit odd, isn't it? All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. What? Why? What's going on here? Why is he so, why is he so keen on the poor? Peter, James and John, what, what, what's the big deal about the poor for them? What's going on? Now, I haven't read this anywhere else, but I think the reason is this. Peter, James, and John were leading churches that were starving, that were very poor, that weren't having enough to eat. 
mean, it's well known, actually, the churches in Jerusalem and Judea were very poor. If you read Acts chapter 11 and verse 29, we read there about the church in Antioch sending aid to the church in Judea via Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, same guy. So it seems to me the reason they ask that they should remember the poor is that they were hungry. The poor were the people in Jerusalem and Judea, including the Christians there. And true gospel unity means we're going to help our Christian brothers who are in trouble. In their situation, it was because they were poor, they were hungry, they were starving, they needed help. That's why we will want to do that. In whatever way we can help, true Christian brothers around the world. Maybe those who are being persecuted, maybe those who are starving. Maybe we'll, you know, we got J, this JH, JHMT, James Hannington Memorial Trust, in this church. And one of the things we do with the JHMT is we, we, it's a channel for us giving to help our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, in particular need, whether they're poor, whether they're being persecuted, whatever the situations, the difficulties are. I think this is specifically a mandate to help the poor and the needy. Christian brothers and sisters... In the Galatians talks about specifically, as a general case, but also specifically Christian brothers and sisters in need. And specifically, how about us resolving today to play our part? Because gospel unity with other Christians means, as it meant then, getting stuck in and getting your hands dirty and opening your wallet and giving to help and support and to encourage and build up and help out and maybe go and be there and help our Christian brothers and sisters. That's part of gospel unity. It's not just the theological stuff. It's actually getting our hands dirty with people who are far less well-off than we are in whatever way that would be. True gospel unity. It cherishes God's grace. And it refuses to let that be compromised. And so it remembers the gospel is fundamental. It respects our different backgrounds. It recognizes our different callings. And it resolves to care for the poor. Especially poor Christian brothers and sisters. Those in need of whatever need that is. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we may be united in the gospel and remain united in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, so much that Paul and these esteemed apostles, Peter, James and John, were preaching the same message Thank you, they recognize the different backgrounds, they recognize the different callings, but they were united because they believed the same gospel. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would stay united in the gospel and we would stay united in our love for each other, our respect for each other, and in our desire to help one another where there is particular need, we pray. Pray that we would be united here united in our differences but united because of our love for each other and our knowledge of you 
in our desire that the gospel should be held high. For Jesus' sake. Amen.